scripture passage is Genesis 2, 18 through 24, and Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. It's printed in your bulletin um, there for you, and we're going to read out loud together. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Knowledge. Knowledge is what brings us together today. To those of you who have no idea what I just said, I'll explain later, and to those who do, you're welcome. There's not many times you get to do that in your life, so you do it when you can. And it's true, we are here today to talk about marriage. In case you miss that up until this point, we are talking about the big story of the Bible and how the big story of the Bible impacts our lives today. And we started two weeks ago talking about work because work was one of the first things that Adam encountered after he was created. And then last week we jumped ahead in the story and talked about money and possessions because in our lives today, money and possessions are 
pretty closely connected with work. And, and also there's some principles there that are going to flow downstream. But now we're going back and, and we're loosely following along as these themes that we're talking about as they appear in the story. And as we're going to see today, marriage was, was the very next major life event that occurred in Adam and Eve's life after work. And so that's why we're here today. And I hope you're going to see in these next weeks that I, I hope there'll be kind of a natural progression to each of these themes or elements in our life today that, that we talk about. Now, I don't think I need to say much more than that by way of introduction. We all know that marriage is a big deal. We all know that marriage is important. We also all know that marriage is difficult. Marriage is really hard to do well. And in general, I think we all know that marriage is, and, and marriage itself is not doing so great in our world today. And so I, I hope that no one here really needs to be convinced that it's a good idea for us to talk about marriage today. I hope no one's saying, well, why are we, why are we talking about this? I think we get it. And I hope we get that it's a very good idea for us to listen in on what God has to say about marriage in his word. And so as we survey marriage in, in the big story of the Bible, I think that every one of us, whether we're married, whether we have been married in the past, or whether we have not been married, I think we're all going to find something important to take home, something important to apply to our lives today. So I'm going to pray for us as we continue, and then we're going to dig in. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have told us everything that we need to know to live in the way that we need to. And so, Lord, I pray that as we hear about marriage this morning, you would help all of us in this room, whether we are young or old or anywhere in between, I help that, pray that you would help us to listen in, Lord, to you and what you have to say and to all realize what this means for us today. If your word, Lord, is going to challenge us to, to, to change our thinking on anything, I pray that we'd be willing for that. Lord, if your word is going to challenge us to change our behavior in any way, I, I pray that we would be willing for that. Help us, Lord, to submit to you, to obey you, to love you, and to hear from you this morning as we hear your word being explained. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Our first stop this morning, as we consider what the big story of the Bible has to say about marriage, is, is in Genesis chapter 2, the part that we just read together with, with Tim. We spent time in this chapter two weeks ago when we heard how the Lord God created Adam and then put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we, we saw that, how Adam was created for a job. Adam was created and was given a mission. And I hope you notice that it's only after Adam has been put to work that we hear verse 18, the Lord's pronouncement. It is not good that the man should be alone. And then we hear of God's solution to this problem. I will make him a helper, fit for him. And so God performs the very first surgery. He knocks Adam out. General anesthetic creates the first woman, not from the dirt like Adam, but from the side of Adam himself. That word rib can, can just mean side. It's, and the emphasis isn't on the bone 
and by the way, guys, we don't have one less rib than ladies. That's, that's a myth. The, the idea is that, Eve, is that Eve was taken from Adam's flesh himself. A very honored position. And so when Adam meets her for the first time after having failed experiences of finding a suitable helper among the animals and Adam meets her, he says, at last. Now, right at this point in the story, I want us to stop and notice a couple of really important things. First thing, did you notice how God did not create Adam and Eve as a married couple and then he put them to work in the garden. The mission of working and keeping the garden came first. And after that, God created Eve because Adam wasn't able to do this job on his own. He needed a helper to be able to fulfill the work that God had given him to do. From the very beginning, marriage was never an end unto itself. People weren't created for marriage. Marriage was not an end unto itself. From the very beginning, marriage was about the mission. I think you know why I'm highlighting that, right? Because it's very easy for us, especially today, to view marriage as an end unto itself, right? The life goal of so many Christian young people is just get married. Whatever happens after that, I don't care. As long as I get married. Isn't that true? That's not the way God created things. That's not the way God set things up. The mission that God gave Adam and Eve to fulfill, that was the most important thing. And marriage was created to help that happen. The second thing I want us to notice, even at this early stage here, is to notice that romantic love is not the ultimate purpose of marriage. Isn't it? also true that it's very common for us today to view marriage as, as the culmination of a romantic experience between two people. Just think of that phrase for a moment, fall in love and get married. It's a phrase we use, right? Oh, yeah, they fell in love and got married. And that doesn't seem strange to us that those two things would go together like that. It's what happens in all the movies, isn't it? It's what happens in all the Christian romance novels, isn't it? It's why so many weddings today, even Christian weddings, are just big celebrations of romantic love. But God didn't create Eve because Adam needed a little romance in his life. It doesn't say that God created a lover fit for Adam. It said that he created a helper fit for him. The main purpose of marriage is not romance, but work. Marriage is about the mission. I believe one of the reasons so many marriages today are struggling and failing is that people have forgotten this. Far too many people have built their whole lives on the singular goal of getting married. And when marriage turns out to be less exciting than they thought, then they get a divorce and find someone else to fall in love with. We're going to say more about this at the end of the message, so I'm going to leave it at that for now. But don't miss the point at this early stage that marriage was about the mission that God gave Adam and Eve to fulfill. It was a means to that end. Now we're going to look at verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. And this comes after we hear all about Adam meeting Eve and naming her woman. And it says, Therefore, 
a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is, this is the key marriage passage in, in the whole Bible. And this verse is so important. It's telling us that what God did with Adam and Eve wasn't a one-off. It wasn't just, just for the two of them. But rather that what he did with them was establish a pattern for others to follow. He was creating the institution of marriage. This is why governments and courts and churches don't get to redefine marriage because it was never theirs to define in the first place. This is God's idea. Now look at verse 24 more carefully. It tells us that when a marriage takes place, there's two main things that need to happen or two main things that do happen when a marriage takes place. The first is that a man, and by extension, the man and his wife, leave their father and mother. That's right there in verse 24. They leave. I always wince when I go to a wedding and I hear the phrase, the reception, welcome to the family. Because it's not biblical. When two people get married, they don't join each other's families. That's not what's going on. When two people get married, they leave their respective families to start a new one. That's what's going on. They leave, and many problems in marriage are a result of not understanding that leaving process very properly. Now, the second thing, they leave, and then in verse 24, they hold fast to each other. In the King James, that word is cleave, and it's great because it rhymes with leave. You leave and you cleave, and it's a really nice to, way to remember it. But ESV says, hold fast. We'll hold fast to his wife, and by extension, the couple holds fast to each other. Now, that might sound like clinginess, like a long hug, but hold fast or cleave. It's a phrase that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about being faithful to someone within a covenant. If you want to look that up, you can write down Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. It's where God talk, is talking about his people and just the fact that, that within the covenant that they were in, they would hold fast to one another. So this is pointing us to the idea that marriage is a covenant in which the people, the couple, holds fast to each other in covenant faithfulness. When I do pre-marriage counseling, I ask the couple, what's the most important part of their wedding day? And the right answer to that question is the vows. Because it's in those vows, when they pledge, in front of witnesses, that they will be faithful to each other, no matter what, sickness or health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, until they drop dead, it is those vows, those public covenant vows that actually make them married. That's, that's what makes a couple married is those vows because it's by those vows that they enter into that covenant with each other. So man and his wife leave their families and they cleave, they hold fast to one another in covenant faithfulness. There's one more thing to notice from verse 24. A man and his wife leave and hold fast to each other in a covenant, and it's then and only then that they become one flesh. This helps us understand the Bible's teaching that physical union 
is a reenactment and a reminder of covenantal union. And this is why the covenant of marriage always must come before physical intimacy. Because physical intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage isn't just wrong. It's unthinkable, or at least it should be. Because physical intimacy is an, is a, an acting out and a reminder of the covenant of marriage, not unlike the Lord's Supper this morning, is an acting out and a reminder of our relationship with the Lord. It's a sign of the covenant. Now, there's so much more we could say about this. This passage is just packed, but I've only got one sermon on marriage, not a series, so we're going to have to move on. But I hope this gives us a little, little bit of an idea of marriage in God's perfect creation. It was about the mission, and it was a covenant between the two of them. Creation. What's the next big event in the story of the Bible? The fall. I think we all know what the fall did to marriage, right? We don't have to look very far to see how Adam and Eve's fall into sin caused devastation to everything in their life, including marriage. Some of that we see in Genesis 3. Remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced words of curse to them for their sin. In Genesis 3.16, he said to Eve, as a result of their sin, as a result of his curse on their sin, he said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Adam having authority over Eve wasn't a new idea. That was, Adam having authority over Eve is not a result of the fall. Right? That was in place before the fall, as seen, for example, in the way that Adam names Eve. That was an act of authority. But after the fall, this whole relationship and authority structure gets shot through with tension. Right? Sin causes marriages to turn into power struggles, war zones of, of conflicting desires. Sin causes marriages to become tense, painful, loveless. Sin causes couples to break their covenant vows and to be faithless to each other. Sin makes marriages end. And some of us don't need to look very far to witness the destruction that comes to marriage because of human sin. My parents, I was eight when they split. I was 12 when they were divorced. I got an inside look at what sin can do to a marriage. And I know that many of you have seen or experienced varying levels of pain because of what sin does to marriages. We all know what this is like. And so we need Jesus. We need the fresh breeze of the new creation to transform the way that we understand marriage, think about marriage, and do marriage. We need Christ. We need Ephesians chapter 5. We need Jesus to redeem marriage. Now, we read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33 together just a few minutes ago. I hope it's still fresh, fresh in your memory here. Is this amazing picture of the way that Jesus transforms and redeems marriages. There's so much in this passage that shows us the way that he does this. But for the sake of our time together this morning, we're just going to focus in from this passage on one key theme. This isn't everything that's here, but it's all that we're going to really zero in on this morning. And it's this. In Christ, we discover that marriage is about something 
so much bigger than just two people. Marriage is actually all about Jesus and us. Now, if you look at the passage in your bulletin or in your Bible, we see hints of this all the way from verse 22 on down. Whereas Paul is, is talking to the women, he's telling them to take their cues from the church and to relate to their husbands the way the church relates to Jesus. And as Paul talks to husbands, he's telling them to take their cues from Jesus and to relate to their wives the way that Jesus relates to the church. There's a connection, obviously, between a husband and a wife and Christ and the church. But that connection is, is really deep. It might be deeper than you might even be aware And it comes, we see that connection when Paul gets to verse 31. And he quotes, you see what's going on in verse, so Ephesians 5, 31, Paul is quoting Genesis 2, verse 24. the, 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 The marriage verse in the whole Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then Paul says this in verse 32. He says in verse 32, This mystery is profound. I stopped there on purpose because you need to think about, we need to think about these words. When you hear the word mystery, what do you think about? What comes to mind? See, this is one of the difficulties with the English language, right? Because in English, the word mystery means something that's hard to understand. Think of like a mystery novel. There's this thing there that you're trying to figure out. No one really knows. It's mysterious. But in the Greek language, and which is the language of the New Testament, mystery doesn't necessarily refer to that. The word mystery means something that previously was hidden, but now has come to life. It was not clear, and now it is clear. That's what the word mystery means. So it's important for you to understand that, because, for example, Paul uses the phrase in the New Testament several times, the mystery of Christ. And that doesn't mean that Jesus is a mystery in the way we think of that word, like, oh, he's hard to understand, or he's mysterious. That's not what it means. The mystery of Christ means that the truth about Jesus was once hidden, It was hidden in the shadows of the temple sacrifices and the old covenant law. And it was the the, the truth about Jesus was obscured. And now the truth about Jesus is plain and clear. It was in the shadows and now it's in the light. That's what the word mystery means. So here's what Paul is saying. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That verse is a mystery. It is telling us something that was once not clear, was once hidden, but now is clear, is visible out in plain sight. So what is it about Genesis 2.24 that was, was, is a mystery that was once not clear and now is clear? Well, we see that in verse 32 where he says, I am saying that it, right? This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it, this mystery, Genesis 2.24 refers to Christ and the church. Genesis 2.24 is talking about Jesus and the church. Do you hear that? All the way back in the garden, 
when God was designing human marriage, he was already thinking about Christ and the church. Of course he was, right? Because we heard he had that planned out before the beginning. And when God brought Adam and Eve together, when God created human marriage, when God inspired Genesis 2.24, he was actually already thinking about Christ and the church. He was already thinking about Jesus who was going to come from heaven to seek and give himself up for his bride and hold fast to his bride, the church, in covenant faithfulness. And God intentionally created human marriage to be a little picture, a little reflection of Christ and the church. That's the mystery of Genesis 2.24, is that it's actually already, all the way back then, talking about Christ and the church. It's the plan from the beginning that marriage would be a picture of something greater than itself. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we get to the end of the Bible, we see the Bible finish up with a marriage. Revelation chapter 19 talks about the great marriage of the Lamb, of Christ. Revelation 21 speaks about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? A bride adorned for her husband. And then in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus promises to come soon. In verse 17, the fifth last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, 17 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the bride? Us, the church. That's where the Bible ends with us as the church saying to our groom, come, come soon. So when we see it that way, the big story of the Bible is a story about a marriage. One great, amazing marriage planned out from before the beginning of time, brought to pass through all of the covenants, ultimately paid for by his death on the cross and his resurrection and his work. It's about the great marriage between Jesus and his people. And this helps us to understand why marriage, human marriage, let me start over this, helps us understand why human marriage is not going to be a part of our experience in the new creation. Right? We know that because Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty, 30, he said, in the resurrection, so when we're resurrected in the new creation, they will neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's going to be no human marriage in the new creation. And this has caused many people, especially newlyweds, to get really sad. Because it sounds like we're really going to be missing out. But we're not going to be missing out. We're not going to need marriage in the new creation. Because we're going to be experiencing the reality of which human marriage was only a picture so imagine this for a moment. Imagine going to a major league baseball game. If you don't like baseball, substitute sport of your choice. And you're sitting in the front row seats, and it's the middle of the game, and it's, you know, your favorite players and everything. It's going on. It's amazing. And you all of a sudden look over, and the guy beside you is looking through his baseball card collection. 
You don't want to say to him, like, dude, put the pictures away. The real thing is right in front of you. Marriage is just a baseball card. It's just a picture. Human marriage is just a, just a representation of the real thing. And we're not going to need the picture when we're actually experiencing the real thing. So that's very briefly marriage in the biggest story ever told. There's really only one marriage that ultimately matters for eternity. We are the bride as his church, as those who believe in him, those who have been saved by him. We're waiting for our groom. And as we do that, we look forward to the day when human marriage, like a baseball card, is going to get put on the shelf because we're going to be experiencing the real thing forever. Perfect fellowship and intimacy with Jesus and with each other forever. But today, here we are in the already but not yet an idea we've talked about many times in this series. Jesus has come, but he's coming again. He, the, the new creation is sort of, it, it's, it's here inside our hearts, right? We're part of that. And we, we know what's going to happen, but, but it's still, the, the kingdom still hasn't come in its fullness. Jesus still hasn't come back yet. And in this zone of history, human marriage is still a thing. Christian marriage is still a thing. Many of you are married. So what does this big story of the Bible have to say about our marriages here and now today? We now know what they're about. We know they're going to pass away. But while they exist right now, here and now today, what does the big story of the Bible say about our marriages? Well, I'm going to suggest that as we step back and survey everything that we've seen today, there's three big ideas that we should take home. Three big truths, three big application points for each of us today, whether today we are married or not. Here's the first big application point I think we should take home from the Bible's big story about marriage. Marriage is about the mission. Number one, marriage is about the mission. Human marriage has always been about the mission that God gave us to fulfill. And we have to stress this because like I said before, many Christians have gotten swept up in the way that our culture worships romantic love and how our culture worships marriage as the culmination of that romantic love. Just think about all the Christian romance novels about two unrealistic people falling head over heels in love with each other and getting married. There's not many novels being written about two people who are already married, staying married through a difficult stretch. That's the kind of story that we need to read. But instead, we're hooked like drugs on the experience of falling in love and getting married. Our culture worships it. It's there in every Disney movie we've seen from the time that we were kids, right? No movie has a happy ending unless two people fall in love. Listen to every song that's on the radio, although these days it's less and less about love because we're, we're getting more and more cynical. It's more and more about lust and dancing or whatever it is. But 
These cultural blinders impact the way we read the Bible. So I just want you to think about the, the book of Ruth for a moment. What's the story of Ruth about? Just think, if you've read the book of Ruth. Here's where I'm going with this. Almost every single preacher or author that I have heard teach on the book of Ruth has made it out to be a romance story. They've somehow inserted the fact that Boaz's heart started to flutter when Ruth got close to him and she swooned in his presence and they had romantic sparks and they were both super good looking, right? Because that has to be in place. And we turn it into a romance, even though none of that is actually a part of the text of scripture. Because it's, it's, it's a cultural blind rule. How can people get married unless they're crazy in love with each other? We've really got to recalibrate here. Now, please understand, I'm not against romance. I know it sounds like that from everything that I've just said. I'm not against romance. Speaking personally, romance is a wonderful part of my relationship with Amy. I fell in love with Amy on Christmas Eve 2009. See, I remember the date even, and I stayed up late that night writing lame poetry for her. I was stupid, drooling in love with her. But... By that point, I had already begun to realize that she was the kind of person that I could serve Jesus with more effectively than I could on my own. And after that point, after that experience of being stupidly in love with her, I didn't just follow my heart. I remember one specific conversation Amy and I had as things were getting more serious. And I asked her, if we get married and if God calls me to do ministry in some really hard place in the world, would you go with me? And if she had said no, we would have been done. Because my life was about serving God and I wasn't going to sacrifice my life's mission just because I fell in love with someone who wasn't willing to do anything God asked them to do. And I asked Amy this question because I had a missionary friend once warn me in very solemn tones not to marry the wrong person because he had told me how he had seen so many young men get fired up for Jesus and want to go serve him somewhere and go off to Bible college and fall in love with someone and then settle into a comfortable North American suburban lifestyle. Buy a big house, get all the toys, and forget about their calling. Meanwhile, being cheered on by a church culture that sees that couple as being very successful because we prize marriage above almost anything else. And I was determined not to let that happen. So while I thoroughly enjoyed falling in love with Amy, in those 19 months between that event and our marriage, there was a lot of hard work, a lot of deliberate conversations with her and with others around me. So young people here, and I mean kids, Bible college students, young people, listen up. Never, ever marry someone just because you're in love with them. That's like buying a restaurant just because you enjoy the food there. You need a lot more in place before you make a massive decision like that. Never, ever marry someone unless you know and unless the wise and mature people around you know that you will serve Jesus more effectively with that person than you would without them. That is the only reason why you should marry someone. Now, a word to those of you who in this room who are already married. I've said getting, getting married is not about falling in love. 
staying married is not about staying in love. Many couples, when they fall out of love, they give up on their marriages. They stop caring, they stop working, they stop trying, or they walk away altogether. Please hear this morning, there's so much more to being married than being in love. Not that there's anything wrong with being in love. Again, I'm not knocking romance. And once again, I can testify here. I am totally bonkers about my wife. And I'm telling you this so you know that I don't just have a thing against romance. She can still just look at me sometimes and reduce me to a drooling fool. The other day, Amy was in the kitchen and I walked towards her and Abigail, I'm pretty sure I heard correctly, Abigail started making kissing noises because she knew what was coming next. But you know what? Amy and I don't feel those romantic feelings all the time. And that's okay. Because we understand. Here's the picture I want you to have. Romance is the gravy on top of the meal. It's not the meal. The meal, the, the meat and potatoes of our marriage is our commitment to help each other serve Jesus more effectively our commitment to help each other serve other people more effectively. Our marriage is about the mission that God gave us, about good works. Romance is just the gravy that goes on top that helps it all taste better. And you know what? You can eat meat and potatoes without gravy. It's not quite as fun, but you can do it. It's a lot better than someone handing you a pitcher of gravy saying, here, drink this. Or worse, serving you gravy poured all over roadkill. So if you're married today, whether or not you still feel in love, the most important thing you can do for your marriage is to realize that it is about the mission. It is about helping each other do good works for the glory of God. Use your marriage to serve each other so that you can serve Jesus and others as effectively as possible. And you know what you're going to find probably is that even if you need to really recalibrate your marriage to make it mission-focused, it's going to make it a lot more fun, right? Our marriages, they can't sustain the weight of all of our hopes and expectations. Our marriages have to be about something bigger than us. And when we make our marriages about the mission, that's actually what makes them enjoyable and might actually be the thing that causes people to fall in love again. I'm going to be posting something more about this on the blog this week on our church website, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But anyways, all of this is our first point of application. Marriage is about the mission. Marriage is about helping each other do what God has called us to do, which at our stage in the story is good works. Second point of application, number two, remember the gospel. This one's shorter. Marriage is about Christ and the church. Marriage is about the gospel. If you're married, a major part of your mission is to so love and respect each other that you give the world a living, breathing picture of what Jesus and the church are like. That's what Ephesians 5 says. You should so love and respect each other that people look at your marriage and say, that's what Jesus is like. That's what being a part of the church is like. I want in. Not on your marriage, but on the reality. 
And the way we do that, how do we make our marriages a picture of the gospel? We obey Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. We obey this passage. Husbands, I hope you know you've got the bigger responsibility in this department. The buck stops with you, husbands. It's your job, husbands, to so love your wife that other people watch you and say, if that's what Jesus is like, I want to know Jesus. That's your job, husbands. Preach the gospel, husbands, by loving your wife well. Your standard of love is Jesus, who, verse 25, gave himself up for us. Many years ago, I had a friend who was in the process of leaving his wife and our friendship. I tried to talk to him about this, and he could do nothing but talk about her and all the things that she had done. And she did this, and she did that. And I said to him, Ephesians 5.25, man, until your wife takes out a hammer and nails and nails you to a piece of wood, until she does that, literally, physically, you have not loved her enough. You have not loved her to the extent that Christ loved us. So press into Jesus, be strengthened by him, and live out the gospel by loving your wife well. Wives, you get to live out the gospel by submitting to and respecting your husbands. Those are unpopular words in 2019, aren't they? But I'm not ashamed of God's word. The rest of our culture should be embarrassed for rejecting God's word. Now I understand that much of the time, submitting to and respecting your husbands does not come naturally. Your husband is not always respectable. Trust me, I know him too. You're supposed to laugh. But that's kind of the whole point. God tells you to do that because it doesn't come naturally. Right? The Bible doesn't say eat when you get hungry because we just do that naturally. The Bible has to tell us something. It's because it doesn't come naturally to us. Respecting your husband is not because it feels easy or because he thinks he needs it, which is a whole other subject. No, it's because your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ and the church. So ladies, how do you talk about your husband in front of your kids? How do you talk about your husband to your friends when he's not around? Do you complain about him, belittle him, roll your eyes about him? When you do that, what does that say about the gospel? What does that say about Christ? Make your marriage about the gospel. And I just want to say one more thing on this point here is that I know marriages are hard. They take a lot of work. They take a lot of regular maintenance. And you know what? Counseling should not be a bad word. I remember once telling some people when Amy and I had done counseling, and I very quickly had to say, oh, I mean, pre-marriage counseling. You know, we've never had to do the other stuff. And I remember someone saying, what's wrong with that if you did? And I just want you to know, you know, I take my car into the shop to get guys to tweak it. It's nothing it's, it takes maintenance. Nothing wrong with you coming to sit down with me and have a conversation about your marriage, for example, or someone else that you trust. Even if your marriage is good and you just want to make it better, 
None of this is easy. None of this comes naturally. Let's work at making your mar- it, our marriages, if you're married, a picture of the gospel. Third point. Marriage is not ultimate. For all of us in the room today, marriage, we need to remember, is not permanent. It's not the most important thing. Marriage is just one way that some people get to glorify Jesus with their earthly life. Their old creation earthly life. But if you know Jesus, whether you're married or not, you are already a part of the real thing to which marriage only points. And that's a truth that we're going to pick up on more next week, which is next week's really a part two of this. Next week, we're going to talk about singleness, which is another way that some people get to glorify Jesus with this stretch of their life. And we're going to see what the big story of the Bible has to say about that. Because what this big story of the Bible does is it puts marriage in our place. Man, it is not the most important thing, is it? Jesus and being a part of his church and doing good works for the sake of others is the most important thing. And whether you are not married, are married, or have been married, that truth should mean a lot to you this morning. So we're going to end today by singing a song that celebrates this truth that we are a part of the real thing. We're a part, if you know Jesus this morning, if you have accepted his death for you, you're a part of his church, his bride. He came from heaven. He came for you. He found you. He did whatever he needed to do to make you his own. And there is a day coming in the future when the real wedding bells are going to ring and we are really going to lock eyes with our real groom and be with him forever. And every human marriage just points to that. We are all a part of that relationship where there's no death do us part because he came back from the dead and he's coming back for us. We're going to sing the church's one foundation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us to remember today what marriage is all about. It is all about you. All, every human marriage is a, is a little pointer, a little picture of what you did, Lord Jesus, when you came from heaven and you came for us and you made us your own and what you will do when you come back for us. Jesus, you are a faithful husband to your church And Lord, I pray that each one of us in this room today, no matter what stage of life or relationship that we are at, that we would get in on that relationship, that we would make the most of that relationship. Don't let any of us miss out on that, Lord Jesus. And to the married couples in this room, I pray, God, you would give them strength to make their marriages about the mission, about the gospel. Help the marriages of Emmanuel Baptist Church to be such that people see you in them. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.